There we go. Okay. So today marks the third week of Advent, which is the joy week. Um, let's go ahead and we'll light our candle and then we'll pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, come. God, thank you for this season of preparation, getting ready for Christmas, and turning our attention to you in, in a deliberate way. God, I ask that you'd speak to us this morning on the topic of joy. <laughs> Lord, I ask that you would um, help us connect the dots for all the ways that you've been talking to us over the last weeks and maybe over our whole lives through the Bible and through the people that we love and care about, through our time together, through worship. Lord, I ask that you would touch our hearts and that you would show us who you are and that we could experience and embrace your joy. We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start today with a Bible project video about joy. So you can watch this and being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. 
He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. Am I on? Oh, there it goes. Okay, there's a lot there. <laughs> I like how they talk about the concept, and they kind of walk us through the Bible like, like a stone skipping across examples between characters who maybe are separated by hundreds of years from each other, like there are many generations difference from Jesus to um, Israelites under oppression to Israelites leaving Egypt, and they're all experiencing joy and peace and hope in uh, very similar ways. So my big takeaway from this video is um, that joy is happiness all grown up. Um, that's, <laughs> that's, where, that's where I'm at. It's like, this is like the, the resilient, mature kind of happiness. That's what joy is. I love to be happy, um, but it's very uh, fickle. I love to laugh. I love when things are going my way. I love it when I'm holding an ice cream cone. But as soon as I drop that ice cream cone in the dirt, like, that's it. It's all gone. Happiness <laughs> is nowhere to be found. But joy has strength and maturity. Joy perseveres. So today we'll read about two women who embrace joy. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist and the wife of Zacharias, who we talked about last week, and then also Mary, the mother of Jesus. So these two are close relatives. Um, they're at least cousins, we know, because their sons are cousins. And so, like, in order to make that work, like, we've at least got to be cousins. But the Bible doesn't get more specific about their connection. Um, but it is clear that the two of them have a very close relationship and so at the time that Elizabeth is pregnant with John, um, and she is older when she gets pregnant, right? She struggled with infertility for a long time. Um, Mary is also pregnant, so they're both over, their pregnancies are overlapping, and Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. So in uh, Luke chapter 1, um, starting in verse 39, this is what we read. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she 
who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. You know, I think it's easy for us to take a quick glance at Mary's circumstances and to see something good. Um, Okay, Um, and to see something good. So um, she gets to see an angel, you know. (laughs) Um, She's the mother to the only kid in the world who never sins. So I assume Jesus was very good at eating his vegetables. And, um, you know, we celebrate Mary, right? Like she's famous and we read about her faith and her virtue in the Bible. Uh, The Catholics even have a special prayer that they pray to Mary, which, to be honest, I probably wouldn't recommend. But, you know, when the football team throws a Hail Mary pass, like, I'm excited, right? We're rallying, like... Something good is going to happen. Like, what if you got to be Mary? But then there's also this other side of it. Like, what if you had to be Mary? Pregnant without an explanation as to how that happens, although everyone around you thinks they've got a pretty good guess. Chosen by God, yet shamed by the world. Mary's calling is very difficult. And this visit to Elizabeth, this is what community is for. When I read this section, I see a young woman being wise, by leaning on her family to help her keep perspective. She's pregnant, and maybe she's starting to feel alone. Maybe all the downsides of carrying this baby are starting to suffocate her. So what does she do? She goes to see her cousin, who struggled with infertility her whole life. And I might be filling in some blanks here, but I'm thinking that if anyone could help Mary to take joy in her baby, it would be Elizabeth, who is also pregnant and is finally able to leave behind the shame that Elizabeth has experienced from society, being a woman who couldn't have a baby. And that's something that I think is a little bit separated from us, you know? Like, I think that the idea of um, a person, it being considered shameful for a a couple not to have babies, like, that's, that's a little bit separate from us, right? And I think that's a really, really good thing. Like, some couples don't want to have kids. Some couples can't have kids. Certainly, there's no shame in it. But this was the reality for Elizabeth and for Zacharias. So Elizabeth is finally pregnant, and her cousin Mary comes also pregnant. And I think that Elizabeth, this loud voice where she proclaims all these true things, like this is joy, being happiness with perspective. Oh, this thing is testing me today. Joy is happiness with perspective. <laughs> perspective is a gift that we can give to one another in community. I remember my mom telling me a story about her friend, Um, and let's call her friend Alice, and this is like a friend in college, and Alice um, had what Alice would describe as chubby, chubby legs, like she didn't like her legs. You know, we all experience that from time to time, right? Like, I don't like my nose, I don't like my hair, I don't, my ankles are fat, or whatever, and, um, and this is something like Alice's thing was like her legs, like she just really didn't like them, and um, it, like, you know, and in college, like girls, like talk about this kind of stuff a lot, so Alice gets a boyfriend, and the boyfriend just, like, has none of it. Like, when Alice goes into her normal routine, oh, chubby legs, the boyfriend says, you have strong, beautiful legs. I don't know what you're talking about. And um, which like, good job, boyfriend. Well done. That's the right response. That's the thing to say. And time goes on. Alice kind of doesn't believe it. She thinks he's kind of blowing smoke. You know, like, oh, yeah, he's saying the right thing. But secretly she thinks, like, he surely he thinks this about me, too, like, this flaw that I have. And then things get serious, and Alice meets her boyfriend's parents. And... When they meet, she discovers that the boyfriend's mother is in a wheelchair. She had been in a car accident when she was younger, really when the boyfriend and his brother were young. And she'd spent her adult life, most of her adult life in a wheelchair, raised her sons from a wheelchair because she'd been paralyzed from the waist down. And suddenly, everything just like clicks into focus for Alice. 
Here she's been complaining about her legs because they're not aesthetically exactly the way that she wants or they're not reaching a cultural ideal that she's been indoctrinated with. But in understanding what her boyfriend's life is like and what her, you know, actually future mother-in-law, I think they did get married, what her mother-in-law's life was like, suddenly she was able to see herself as strong and beautiful and blessed and fortunate. You know, perspective can really help us um, to, like, or having our perspective broadened can really help us to interpret some of the difficulties that we have in this world in a different way. Perspective is a gift that we can give to one another. It's one of the many ways that God redeems the bad things that happen to us. You know, you and I have probably had some difficult hardships in our life, right? And they're probably different. You've been through things that maybe I've never experienced. Maybe I've, I've had some challenges or some struggles that you can't relate to, that you've never had to go through yourself. And when we can come together and listen and share those things, in addition to being a comfort to one another and an encouragement to one another, we can also learn something about ourselves. I think we live in a time where the temptation to focus on our own hardships can be very, very powerful. Like maybe you've experienced this a little bit, kind of like it's almost like a race to the bottom, you know, or like a race to like who's had it worse. Like stop telling me about your thing. Like wait till you hear about what I went through. Like my problems are real problems, you know. But if we can set that aside, and if we can listen with compassion and with concern to the people around us, and if we can vulnerably share the experiences that we've had we can start to find treasures in our own pasts. Things that maybe it never occurred to us to be grateful for, but when my friend talks about having never had that thing or having never experienced that thing or, or maybe being much older than I was the first time that they were able to have a certain gift or a certain experience or you know, get encouragement from a parent or a teacher or something like that, I think these things can really help us like, to see more of the beautiful things that have been given to us. It's human nature to take the good stuff for granted, right? Like, it's just, it's so easy to, when things are going well, to think like, ah, oh, things are right with the world. This is how it should be. This is what I deserve. And maybe we forget to count our blessings. But when we share our hardships with one another, I think we can see the blessings with a lot more clarity. Sometimes people who are followers of Jesus will um, express to me something along this, it usually goes something like this, like, oh yeah, like I love Jesus, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't go to church. And it always is a little heartbreaking, not just because I happen to lead a church and I want us all to be together, but I do. But also, like, I think that the other person is missing out in two really, really critical ways. One is they're not receiving the encouragement that it can come from being a member in a community, you know? Like, there's something about just having the commitment of, like, regular church attendance or, like, I member here at the Vineyard, right? Like, I come and I give and I serve sometimes. And sometimes I come and I just get served by all my friends. <laughs> That's really nice. Thank you for making the coffee today. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, that kind of encouragement is something that we need. But also I think that people who are following Jesus but don't attend church, they don't understand what they're, what they're denying the rest of us by not coming and sharing vulnerably the things that have been hard for them. You know, like, I think there's this give and take that happens in community where, you know, and maybe you've heard that before of, like, the, 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 the whole is more than the sum of all the parts. I think that's so true in community. Like, the goodness in this room is more than just each individual person's goodness, but, like, the spirit of our relationship with one another 
can help all of us to grow and to experience God in different ways and just to like be the best versions of ourselves. I think church has made me a much more generous person, a much more compassionate person. If I was left on my own with all of this stuff, I don't know, guys, I think, I think it might get dark pretty quickly. So I think that like, you know, being with our brothers and sisters in Christ and the commitment that we make here is something that it's so easy to take for granted, the wonderful things that we get out of this, but oh man, I think it's, I think it's the wonderful things that we get here being together. Since one of those gifts that we give to each other is perspective, I think when we add perspective to our happiness, it can grow into joy. But I think it's also true that when we add perspective to our burdens, like our concern about chubby legs, or like being pregnant at a time when it really doesn't seem like that wasn't part of the plan, I think that perspective can sometimes even help our burdens grow into a source of joy. And that's the kind of stuff that our good God does. So what is it that Elizabeth says about Mary? I love this. She says, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. I think that sounds a lot like in the video. Um, I wrote down this quote, Joy is an attitude God's people adopt not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. And we see Mary full of joy. Her pregnancy is a scandal. Joseph planned to divorce her quietly, which is a very kind and gracious response, but still it would have been devastating for her. You, know, you just think about all of the plans she might have made as a little girl about who she would marry, what her, what her wedding day might be like, what that celebration would be, being the center of attention and celebrated in a way that I think our culture really gets right. I love weddings and celebrating couples that are making a lifelong commitment and love to one another. And maybe she would have thought about what she was going to wear and who would have been there. And maybe she would have even thought about like what her parents might have said or you know, what Joseph would have thought about her on that day. And so letting go of all of those things, all of those things were changed by God's call on her life to bring the Savior into the world. And yet Mary seems to exhibit this joy because she's let go of control. Joy is happiness that has let go of control. She's clearly not calling the shots in her life. Like, her life is not by design. Like, this isn't her big architected plan for, like, the perfect life of a young Israelite girl in, in Judea and, and the surrounding regions. But Mary submits to God's plan for her life, even though it surely looks nothing like what she would have done for herself. And I think that just inspires me to ask, like, what are the plans that I'm clinging to that if I let go of, because maybe God seems to be doing something else, um, that if I let go of maybe, maybe I would see that space filled in with joy, or I would have more joy to experience. I wonder if anybody would say this about me, and maybe you wonder it too, like, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her or to him. Do we believe the promises that God, that God will fulfill the promises he's made to us? What does that even look like? I think Mary shows us a way in this next part of the passage. So this is Mary's song. Um, this is a little bit famous in the Bible. Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And I think this part is really critical because she's not saying, My spirit rejoices in my salary, my Savior. My spirit rejoices in my job, my Savior. My spirit rejoices in my 401k, my Savior. 
She's not saying, my spirit rejoices in my strength, my Savior, or my status, my Savior, or my beauty, my Savior. She's not even saying, my spirit rejoices in my government, my Savior, my military might of the land where I live, my Savior. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And, and rejoicing in God, our Savior, unlike all those other examples I just listed, that will never change. God will never change. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Joy is happiness that is let go of control. I think this might be a place where um, you know, this picture of faithfulness. She has this hope. She has peace. She has joy. We see how these qualities, they lead to each other and they strengthen each other. You know, I think her hope leads to joy and I think her joy allows her to experience peace, which then leads to more joy and more hope. You know, we'll talk about love some more next week. Um, she praises God and she leans on him, not because of the things that she can control, but instead she trusts God. Trusting God is a source of joy. Mary isn't striving after a culturally acceptable ideal. Her hope isn't in wealth or status. And her hope isn't in government. Like that line really struck me from the video, joy in the wilderness. I think some of us, um, maybe like broadly speaking, I think like maybe the American church, let's like, when I say us, I mean like, you know, the big us. Um, I think the American church has maybe gotten this a little bit wrong. I think that instead of praying, God, give me joy even here when we're confronted by wilderness, when we're confronted by unhappy circumstances, places where it feels really difficult, um, I think instead the American church kind of takes a different view. I think like we're really tempted to go in a different direction, more like I need to leverage my personal power in order to tame this wilderness. I need to conquer this wilderness, you know, like maybe in, in the name of Jesus, but also in the name of me not being uncomfortable. Um, I need to not be, I'm not going to be sad or weak. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, donate to politicians. I'm going to vote my political party into power. I'm going to use whatever influence that I have to make the world follow the rules the way that I see them. And that's what's going to make me safe. And that's what's going to get me through or out of the wilderness is if I can just become stronger than the wilderness and we put our trust in ourselves. But Mary is showing us a different way. Her reliance on God and her recognition that God lifts up the humble, that he has mercy on those who respect him, and that he keeps his promises even in the wilderness. I think in all of this, I see that I've got a lot to learn here about joy and trust. And there's this invitation into joy. So how can we respond to Mary's example? What's God's invitation for us? How can we pursue joy? I think the first is to pursue community. Um, and there are a couple parts to this. You know, I think one is just being our authentic selves, being vulnerable and sharing about our experiences, listening when others share. I think another is to keep commitments. I think authenticity, like there's this like kind of tricky thing about authenticity. 
Um, and I don't know if this is like a, a, a generational thing, like if this is just like my people. I'm like an elder millennial, although every now and again Josh will say, your Gen X is showing, because <laughs> like I'm right on the line. Um, but I think like sometimes <clears throat> we can say, like, um, like an example for me is I'm really, I'm really slow to text people back, like I'm just bad at texting in general. Sorry about that. And, um, and I think something that can happen is I can say like, well, I don't want to text back, and so I'm authentically being bad right now. Like my, I'm a bad, I'm bad at this, and so I'm going to authentically embrace this. I'm going to let down my friends. I'm not going to keep my commitments because that's what authenticity is. And you know, I just I, there's like this is a trap, <laughs> you know. Like I think like keeping our commitments to one another to build community means that I can become a person who authentically does text back. I can be a person who authentically does show up on time. I can be a person who authentically does volunteer to help out, or when a friend has a need, I step in, or when a, a prayer gets added to the app, I pray. You know, like keeping these commitments, I think we have to be careful that authenticity doesn't like lead to like an excuse for like lame behavior, but rather that authenticity, authenticity is like we keep our commitments and then those become an authentic practice for us. Another thing that we can do is we can invite others into community. There's a pastor that I really like, his name is Jim Egley, and he's like the small group pastor at a big vineyard church in central Illinois. And um, one time, we, um, shortly after Josh and I became the um, pastors of this church, he called and he said, oh, hey, I'm going to be in Springfield. I guess it was like a year after, but still. He called and said, like, hey, I'm going to be in Springfield. And I, I looked you guys up because you're the pastors of the local vineyard church. I'll, 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 I'll stop by and have coffee if you guys want. And we're like, oh, Jim Eckley. <laughs> Yes, like he's famous, like everything I've ever learned about small groups I've learned from this guy on DVDs. Like he was just like on my television screen so much in like the early 2000s. So I'm kind of like fangirling out, which I think he found rather like odd and, and like a little bit unnerving, you know, like I don't, like he didn't, he didn't like play it like he was like down with being like a famous guy or whatever, but he's had big influence on us. And um, the thing that I remembered from these DVDs, him talking about small he has like a PhD in small groups. He's like Dr. Small Group. And he talks about inviting people to small group or inviting people to church. And they've done a lot of surveys, and they've like, looked at a lot of research that other people like Barna Group and stuff have done. And there were two things that I remember him saying. It was like early, I was like, I'm like a young Christian, I'm like 22 years old. And I remember him saying this, and it just was so like heartbreaking for me. He said, most people who come to church with a neighbor um, they'll say that for like a long time before their neighbor invited them to church, that they were sort of wishing that maybe somebody would invite them to church. Like they also say like, I had like a long period of time in my life where like I kind of wanted to go and I was kind of hoping somebody would ask and it took a while. And then, seemingly self-contradictory, these same people say, but like, I need to be asked like a bunch of times. <laughs> like, like the, so somebody invited you, did you come? Like, well, not the first time, and not the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time. It's like between five and seven times is, a person, is when a person responds to an invitation to come to church. And you know, as a person who's been in church my whole life, and you know, I've been in these sermons right now, and the pastor starts talking about inviting people to church, and it's like, oh no, like, I don't want to invite anybody to church. Like, I don't know if that's okay, and they're going to get mad, and they're going to think I'm weird, and I don't want to upset them, and uh, like, I just get, like, like, I don't experience a whole lot of social anxiety, but suddenly, like, a whole lot of social anxiety, like, is like, hello, I've been here the whole time, I'm focused exclusively on making sure you don't invite people to church, but I feel, <laughs> I feel like Satan, it's almost like he has put, like, 
this screen up in front of my neighbor, and it shows, like on the screen, he projects like this big scary monster that if I say, hey, do you want to come to church on Sunday? The monster is going to like eat me, you know? <laughs> like that's what, like I don't, I don't logically think that'll happen, but if you look at my actions and how much I avoid doing this, clearly that's what I think is going to happen. But behind the screen is like a sad, scared, lonely child saying, man, I really, I really wish somebody would invite me to church because I need a good excuse to go. I'm scared to go. I want to go. I don't know. Maybe somebody would invite me. Inviting people to church is something that can be a source of joy. And they need to be asked like five times. So like they're not going to come. They're going to say no the first time. So you can just set in your mind, like I'm going to invite them. They're going to say no. And then that'll be the end of the conversation. And I don't have to worry about this again for several weeks or months or however long I can make it until God like, you know, pings me about this again. So like it's low risk. Like you know the answer is going to be no, no problem. So it's no, I'm, just, I'm just trying to get one of the check marks on the scoreboard so that, you know, when the real time comes around, they'll be able to make it. I try to trick myself into that kind of stuff. We could even make the goal, Josh and I have talked about this, is that I need to make the goal to, like, get refused by people. I need to invite people to church. I'm going to make the goal of, like, I want to get refused, like, ten times. And then if I invite somebody to church and they come, it'll be like, man, they came to church. Now i got to ask another person to come to church because I need to get refused ten times, you know, to make my goal or whatever. I'm a really goal-oriented kind of a person, like, KPIs at work, key performance, like that's my world, I like that kind of stuff. If you, if like what I just said about having a goal to invite people to church makes you feel like the welts that like you're having like hives reaction to this, don't do that. Just listen to God, move in the spirit, you know, <laughs> see the monster screen for what is it, what it is. And imagine that maybe, maybe God has told you to invite somebody to church or has put somebody on your mind or your heart who's wishing right now that they would get an invite. Isn't that a nice thought? I think that's a nice thought. Another thing that we can do to follow Mary's example is to trust God, and this takes practice. Um, I think there are lots of different ways that we can trust God. One is we can trust God in worship, um, singing and, like, worshiping God with our bodies, like raising our hands. A couple worship leaders now have talked about, like, I feel like people want to raise their hands, but then maybe we're scared, and so I'm going to make an invitation. I think that's great. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine in college. He converted to Christianity. And um, we were talking about this, like, raising your hands and worshiping, which, like, I come from, like, a small Pentecostal church, so, like, I spent all my nervousness about raising my hands in worship when I was, like, 16. Um, and, but I'm, I'm very comfortable now. Like, I can even do it in this sermon. I can just raise my hands anytime I want. Look how free I am. But I wasn't <laughs> when I was 16. So I'm talking to my friend about it, and he's like, you know, I, I don't know about that whole, like, demonstrative like, uh, you know, worshiping. And I said, you know, it feels good. Like, there's psychology behind it. This is a power pose, you know, like lifting up for a hug and like, you do it at the rock concert. Like, come on. And um, he was like, I don't know. And he was like, but you like, you're confident. You're like comfortable and happy with all that. But you don't really like, you don't have, a, you, you clearly are one of the people who should do that. I shouldn't do that because I don't feel good about it. And I said, oh, I get nervous about this stuff. Or at least I did when I was 16. There would be times where I would be like, I'd be like standing like little, you know, like very Baptist pose, because when I was really little, we went to Baptist church, and I'd think, like, people around me have their hands up, and I'd think, like, okay, I could put my hands up while I'm singing, you know, and kind of, like, peek around, like, who's looking, and I'm going to do it, I'm going to put my hands up, I'm going to put my, I'm going to fix my hair, and I'm going to put my hands right back down, you know, (laughs) the number of times that I, like, fixed my hair and worshiped to God, but, like, starting that way, like, and I'm not saying everybody has to raise your hands, like, please don't do it even for show, don't do it for me, but if you feel like that's the thing that you want to do, to be free and worship that way, it's going to feel risky the first time. 
Um, coming up to give, get prayer, it's going to feel risky the first time. Um, giving financially, I think it like, really feels risky. Um, you know, Jesus teaches us to tithe, which is 10%. And if you just did the math on 10% and thought, oh, I could not give 10%, like I can't need some groceries, you know, <laughs> then like, then don't tithe. Like start with, start smaller, start with a little bit. But there's so many cliches that we have around taking that risk with God. You know, you can't outgive God. I, and like we give him 10%, the first fruits, and then he blesses everything else that we have. So many people have stories of, like, I started tithing, and I didn't know how the math was going to work out, but somehow we weirdly just did fines, and money showed up in the mailbox. I don't know. But, like, taking these kinds of risks um, in trusting God and in pursuing community, these are things that can really create an environment for us to experience great joy. So we're going to take some time to try out a few of those things right now. So would you stand? Our band is going to come and play another song. You could raise your arms during worship if you want to. Um, and you could come up and get prayer if, uh, if you want to. Some of us here, I think, would say, I'm not a joyful person, like great sermon and all, but like this joy stuff, like it's not really true on the inside for me. Um, and I would just say, like, I think God wants to give you joy this morning. Um, maybe there are burdens or struggles or hardships that are overwhelming. Bad things, I think, can be really deafening. And coming up to get prayer means somebody else is going to help you hear from God right now. So I would encourage you to come up and get prayer. And then some of us, I think, would say, you know, I'm doing okay, but just then, Carol, when you said someone will help you hear from God, boy, I could really use some help hearing from God. Um, yeah, so come up. <laughs> someone will put their hand on their shoulder, and uh, they'll pray for you. And um, we can all just share what we've been given and minister to one another. So let's sing. <laughs>